Jesus' most personal and powerful teachings are conversations with his disciples in the book of John. Nowhere else is his instruction both so simple and so deep. Take your place in the upper room to hear the heart of God that still speaks today. I encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We're continuing with this series that we've been in, in the upper room. If you have a Burgundy NIV Bible, it's on page 984. If not, you're on your own. So it'll be on the screens as well. Remember, we are reading this, but Jesus is speaking this to his disciples. This is not to the masses. This is not to a big crowd. This is to his close disciples. This is, what the gospel, this is what the gospel writer John says in verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father... They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. That's God's word for us today. It's worth just taking a second to remind ourselves kind of where we're at. We've been journeying in the Gospel of John since chapter 13, and it lines up perfectly with where we're at in the season of Lent and going towards the cross. We couldn't be in a more perfect passage for this. And Jesus has been talking to his disciples in this upper room, and it's his closest followers that he's talking to. And he's telling them, and he's been hinting that he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to rise again, but his disciples aren't quite getting this, and I want to just encourage us to remember they don't know what we know. We have the narrator's point of view but they're clearly confused, and I would assume we would be as well. So they don't know all these things, and Jesus has been bringing a lot of powerful, new, slightly confusing teachings their way. Remember in John 13, he washes their feet, which they were not expecting, uh, and that kind of throws them, and he teaches them about leadership that looks different than what they thought, and then he talks about Peter's uh, denial that's going to come forth, and that wasn't very fun for him to hear about. 
he starts talking about this Holy Spirit that's going to come. And that's, that's a bit new for them. Then he starts talking about abiding. He talks about vines and branches and pruning. And then he talks more about the Holy Spirit, and he calls him the advocate and the comforter and the spirit of truth. And then we're going to get to this chapter we're in. And then the next chapter, Jesus is going to pray for the whole chapter. It's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Jesus prays for his disciples, and then he prays for the disciples that will follow, which are all of us. And then immediately after that, Jesus gets arrested. We are at the tail end of Jesus' teaching while he was on earth. So these are really important words, not just for the disciples, but for us here today. And I just want to mention kind of three things to think about. We have to, when we come to the Bible, we have to try to understand what it was like for the first people reading it to understand it. What was this like for the disciples? That helps us understand what was going on. And then we can get to what is the Spirit of God saying to every one of us here and online today? What is God doing? And a question I want you to sit with as we walk through this whole passage is really going to be this. Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust Jesus in life and in death? Can we really trust him? I think that's the question that's before. So the first thing I want to talk about as we're just going to kind of work through this passage is we have to talk about the way that Jesus speaks. Because Jesus speaks kind of weird. <laughs> was anybody else confused at all when I read this? Right? I was confused and I've like gone to school for this stuff. It's a little while this, a little while that, right? Jesus uses language that's difficult, it's puzzling, it, it's, I kind of think I know what you're saying, and, and we know the whole story. Imagine the, how the disciples feel. And it's confusing, it's kind of cryptic. You're like, I think I know what he's saying, but I'm not really sure. It's cryptic because Jesus is simultaneously talking about two different things. He's talking about his death and his resurrection at the same time, both of which the disciples don't get. And so the, when these things are overlapping, it becomes a bit confusing. And it starts to feel like, well, Jesus is, it feels like he's talking at riddles. And guess what? He absolutely 100% is. And it says it in John 16, 25. Jesus says this right after the passage we read. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. So Jesus is using figurative language on purpose, and he knows it. And John is recording that as Jesus' words. It's worth trying to understand and sit with that for a minute if you're the disciples. There's a great Reformed theologian. He was a CRC pastor as well. This guy, William Hendrickson. He says this of this passage. I thought this was really well said. I wanted to read it. He says this, quote, Perhaps because we've become so used to Jesus' parables, the way that Jesus teaches, we often forget how they must have baffled those who first heard it. Nevertheless, this bewilderment is very real. A common reaction to Jesus' teachings were, how can this be? What can this be? Listen to the kind of things that Jesus says. says this, Williamson. Jesus had spoken about raising up the temple in three days. Kind of confusing. Being born again. Living water which quenches thirst once and for all. Rivers of water flowing from within believers, people who would never see death. And about himself, Jesus says, as the one whose flesh the believer must eat and whose blood he must drink. That's a difficult one. Having preceded Abraham in time, Abraham lived a long time ago, as a good shepherd who would lay down his life about a mysterious betrayer, and to this, 
an enigmatic little while, which is followed by another equally puzzling little while. I thought that was really well said. Jesus is a bit confusing. He's speaking truth. He is God. He's a little confusing, at least for me. So why is Jesus talking like this? Because this is going to help us understand, I think, a little bit about what's going on here. Jesus may be slightly confusing, but he's consistent because this is how Jesus teaches in all the Gospels, okay? He's consistent. Now, we got to remember that what Jesus seems to be about, which is hard for us, is Jesus seems to want people to discover who he is kind of on their own. He's leading them, but he's not just coming out and, hey, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Let's do this thing, overthrow Rome. He never really does. You're kind of waiting for him to do it, right, when you read through this, and he never quite does it. You know why? Because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. And that's not how they teach. They use pictures and images, and they want you to see things and discover things. Jesus is about the process. He's about the answer. He is about the destination. He is absolutely about truth, but he wants to kind of take you there. Let me give you an example. In John 5, there's a story where Jesus heals a man who's crippled, it says, for 38 years. You may be familiar. And he, he's waiting at this pool, and when it, get, they believe when it got touched by an angel, right, whoever got into the, to the pool first got healed. And this man is crippled, and he can't get to the pool for whatever. I mean, he can't walk, so that's why he can't get there. And no one's helping him to get there. And Jesus comes up to this guy, classic Jesus move. And he walks up to a guy who's not walked for 38 years and says, hey, do you want to be made well? If I walked up to somebody who's in a wheelchair today and said, hey, do you want to walk again? It'd be really offensive, probably. Because the obvious answer is what? Of course. Like, Jesus, of course I want to walk again. What kind of question is that? And this is like a totally classic Jesus move. Because Jesus is going to dialogue with this man about what's really going on. And it's not just his legs. Because what he says after Jesus heals him, he says this to this man. It's puzzling. See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus has this conversation. And what you start to realize is Jesus, the, the process shows that this was not just about physical healing for this man. And though this man was crippled, He's still accountable for his own sin. Jesus is always trying to get to deeper things for us to discover who he is. And that's what he's doing with his disciples. And I think that's what he's doing with us today. Jesus is a person who asks a lot of questions. Check this out. This was so fascinating to learn. If you combine all four Gospels, Jesus asks over 300 questions to people. I think it's 307. Over 300 questions. He's asked 183 questions. Now check this out. Of those 183 questions, how many questions do you think that Jesus directly answers? A grand total of eight. This is like a a rabbi at his best. It's not that Jesus doesn't give answers. He's trying to pull people to discover something about who he is. See, Jesus reminds me to put it in kind of our context. I have any like Lord of the Rings fans or, you know, Harry Potter. I don't know if we can say that. I did. Fantasy stuff. Jesus, Jesus is kind of like this Gandalf character or Dumbledore who clearly is the most powerful person there. He can just like chop people down with his whatever he's got. 
He's this wise professor. He knows everything, but he's not telling the full story. He's trying to pull people towards something because that process, that discovery is part of the journey. The destination matters for sure, but so does the process. And Jesus is inviting his disciples into that. And today for us, Jesus is inviting you on a journey to discover more and more of who he is. That is what Jesus is doing for all of us. Now, this is why Jesus does not have a problem confusing his disciples. And I don't think he really has a problem confusing us. And here's why. It's not that he doesn't want us to know things, because we do. Confusion gives us the opportunity to go back to Jesus. Confusion gives us the opportunity to come back to him continually. But I don't understand this. Go to him. Disciples, oh, what did he mean when it's, you know, somebody needs to ask him. And they ask him, and it, the conversation keeps going, which is what's going to happen here. We have the opportunity, and we go through stuff, and we're not sure what to do in life, and we're not sure about how to make sense of something. You don't stay there by yourself. You go to God. You pray. It's an invitation back to him. And this is consistent with how Jesus teaches. Listen to these words in Matthew 11. You know this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's an invitation to come to him. And the way that Jesus teaches is an invitation to continually come back to him. And Jesus sees that they're confused about the little while stuff, like, you know, which one is it? And Jesus says stuff like the first will be last, the last will be first. And you're left thinking, wait, I don't, I don't quite get that. And it's an invitation to come back to him. And so when he's going to talk to them again in verses 19 through 22, he's going to talk about the same thing, but he's going to talk about sorrow and joy. And that's where we start to get to the heart of what Jesus is doing here. Because what's about to happen is the disciples are about to experience sorrow like they've never experienced before. Jesus has been hinting at this, but hinting is different than actually experiencing it for yourself. We can talk about problems. It's a whole other thing to actually be embodied and go through them. And Jesus knows what is coming, and what's really going to be hard is they're going to be sorrowing while other people are rejoicing. And it's one thing for us to, if you've had grief, to share that grief with other people, and it kind of somewhat is comforting. It's a whole other thing to be sorrowful and have somebody rejoicing that you're in pain. That feels cruel. Proverbs 2, 12 through 14 says this, Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from those whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil. There are people who are rejoicing, who are going to rejoice in their pain. And Jesus is trying to prepare them for that. The religious leaders, the Romans, they're going to think that they've won when they nail our Savior to the cross. The disciples are going to think they lost, that it's over. And in this passage, Jesus is showing them there's going to be more because this crosses this dividing line. But their sorrow is not going to stay sorrow forever. It's going to turn to joy, like it says in verse 20. Your grief will turn to joy. And to explain this, Jesus uses 
a metaphor, which shouldn't be surprising to us. He says this, it's about childbirth. He says a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby's born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that the child's born. He says, so with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will get to take away that joy. Now, I'm treading lightly here. Because from what I hear, childbirth is painful. I feel uncomfortable talking about this as a man, um, to be quite honest with you. And Jesus did, but he's Jesus. So, but Jesus wasn't married either. So anyways, um, childbirth is painful and it takes longer than expected. I mean, I have two sons. I was there for both. I mean, I was in there. First one took forever. <laughs> Second one just like, whoop, it's out. Um, but I was there. You know, you got this, Kaylin, and you, you're there, you know. But I really, I don't think I was very helpful, you know, to be honest with you. Um, but think about this. Childbirth, pregnancy ends the moment the child is born. That whole season of, of being pregnant and all the stuff that comes along with that, and then the actual child thing, um, which is, looks excruciating. Um, and then it's over, and you have a baby. And then what's crazy is you end up having more of them because you just forget that whole thing. And then when they're pregnant again, you remember, and then you have more conversations about that. Um, <laughs> but the metaphor is, is this, okay? I don't want to get distracted, which I am. So too, with Jesus's death is going to mark kind of the beginning of their start. It's going to be the end of what they thought Jesus was doing, what they thought the kingdom of God was going to be, and his resurrection is going to be the beginning of true joy, of true life, of new creation. The Bible talks about this in a whole bunch of different ways. See, the joy that Jesus brings is greater than the pain and sorrow life brings. That's what Jesus is declaring. What Jesus is promising, it doesn't mean there's not pain and sorrow. It means that the joy that the Holy Spirit provides to us is more transcendent than that. Which is amazing news. But it doesn't mean that pain and sorrow are trivial. That Jesus wants us just to quote verses and like, just get over your pain. Like, this is no big deal because, because Jesus won. No, Jesus understands and cares about us. And the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is a great example of this. If you're not familiar with it, there's a family, Lazarus is the brother, and then Mary and Martha. And they're close disciples of Jesus. They're with him the whole time. And Lazarus gets sick. So they send word to Jesus, hey, Lazarus is sick. Like, come, come heal him. Come save him. You care about him. And Jesus intentionally doesn't go. And he waits, and Lazarus dies. And he's dead for four days. He's in a tomb. A little bit of a foreshadowing here of what's going to happen to Jesus. And then Jesus finally comes after he's in the tomb, right? He's been dead for a while. It's not pretty. Jesus makes his way. And the two sisters who love Jesus, who've been following him, they say the same thing to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they're absolutely right. If Jesus had been there, boom, their brother would still be alive. And as he's moving toward them, 
And the people that are, he sees them weeping. He sees the family around them and the other friends weeping. And Jesus is moved in his spirit. And it says that Jesus saw that and Jesus wept. He has compassion. He feels their pain. He cares. He cares about your pain. He cares about your sorrow. He is acquainted with that, and he's about to experience that for himself on the cross. And then what Jesus does is he then raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, it would have been incredible to see happen. The grave, the stone is rolled away, and Lazarus comes out. And can you imagine the joy that Mary and Martha would have experienced at that moment? Can you imagine what that would have been like? And just as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, so Jesus would defeat death and his disciples would see him again. See, pain would give birth to joy. But Lazarus was going to end up passing again. Jesus resurrects for all time. And we hold on to that hope. See, death is not the end for those who put their hope in Jesus. It doesn't make sorrow, it doesn't make pain cease to exist But Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what they're about to encounter. And this, they're going to, Jesus says, their joy is going to be complete. Their joy is going to be perfected, fulfilled, and it can't be taken away. See, the happiness and these things that we experience in life, they're fleeting. Right? You could be, you're happy, man. You're happy driving home from work on Friday, right? Oh, man, Sunday night tonight, right? Some of us. I mean, we love our jobs, but, right, the feelings that we experience change. You're so happy when you sign up for the marathon, (laughs) right? And then you're running for, like, six months, and it feels like pain and sorrow. And then you have to do the whole thing, and it's even worse than you thought. I mean, I got the things I saw running that marathon, I won't even say it. It was, like, humanity at its best, let me tell you. Uh, and And then you finish, and then people, the first, are you going to run another marathon again? You're like, what kind of question is that? Here's what's bad. We're so forgetful. A lot of us probably will sign up for one again. Because there was something that that produced in us, right? This joy. One of the gifts, if we can see it this way, that pain brings, if you've been through hard circumstances, There is a joy on the other side of that because you start to realize what really matters in life. And Jesus is offering us and offering the disciples, there's a joy I'm going to give you that death can't take away. That being flogged can't take away. That pain and rejection, that, that can't be taken away. This joy is so sure because it's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You learn that you belong to Christ both in life and in death. I was reminded of the Heidelberg Catechism, and many of you have read this, and if you don't know what it is, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of our confessions, three confessions, as a Reformed church. And it's set up in questions and answers. And if you don't have, if you've never heard of it, please talk to me. I want to get you a copy. It's absolutely incredible. And this is what it says. This is question and answer one. What is your only comfort in life and death? And some of you have this memorized that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Now listen to this. Because I, you, belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, the joy that Christ can give us allows us to do this last part, to wholeheartedly live for him, not in heaven one day, now, today. That's good news. That means that when we encounter sorrow or something happens, joy can still be in there. You can be going through the toughest situation in your life and Christ is there with you. Because we share in his sufferings and in his glory. Nothing, this is Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. And life and in death, pain and sorrow, and the good things and the hard things, the joy of Christ is with us through the Spirit of God. As we start to close in this passage, Jesus ends by returning to something that he's talked about before in this series, which is asking. And I remember, I, got, I talked about this a couple months ago. We talked about knowing, seeing, and asking in John 14. And Jesus comes back to this asking. Why is he doing this? Why would he bring this up again? It's an invitation to ask. Well, I want you to think about this. Your kids or my kids, for example, they get to come to me and ask me stuff. And they do all the time. All the time. Uh, they can ask me for a snack. They can ask me to play Fortnite or whatever. They can ask permission to do something. And they have that right as my sons to come up to me and ask me that. Kind of whenever they want, even when I think it's inappropriate. But they still do. Because kids are like that. Kids are the best. I love my kids. They're awesome. Check this out in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. We are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. And in the Roman world, when you adopted someone, three things happened. You took on the name of the Father. You took on that name. You had a new name given to you. Okay? You, become an, you have an inheritance now of that father, that family. And the third one, which is absolutely incredible, as an adopted son, you could never be forsaken. You could, you could disown your own, own blood children. You could not forsake your adopted children that you chose. And Paul uses that language to talk about us. We are adopted. We cannot be forsaken by Jesus Christ. Never. Because our salvation is built on his blood, not our own. It's not on anything that you or I can do. Those are powerful words. And because of that, 
We get to come to Christ and ask him stuff because that's what children get to do. See, as children of God, we are expected, we are invited to come to Christ and ask for things in his name. My kids better come to me and ask for things. We better go to God and ask for things in Jesus' name. Now, it's not, though, it's not, God, I really want this, and I really want to buy that, and I really wish you would speak to that person because they're driving me crazy, although we've all prayed that, maybe, right? Remember, we've been talking about suffering and joy and how that changes our perspective on what God's doing. Instead, it's things like this, God, I ask for forgiveness, God, I ask that you would give my family the strength to get through this difficult season. God, I ask that you would give me the strength to show mercy to whoever. God, I pray that you would be with that family. God, I pray that you would move in that way. See, these are prayers that go forth out. They're not just about ourselves. See, the things that we ask for in Christ's name, they show our level of trust for him. If my prayers are only about myself, It starts to reveal that I may not trust God in the ways I think. When I start thinking about other people, it's because I trust that God's going to take care of me. I don't even have to pray for that. And that's the journey that we're on. Do we trust Christ? Even when we're perplexed by his words, even when I'm, I don't know if I totally know what that makes sense, are we going to go to him? As he calls us to in Matthew chapter 11, because we're on a journey just like the disciples. And that's what this season of Lent is. We journey with Christ. And I hope you notice there's some artwork around the worship center. We don't normally have these in here. And maybe you're thinking, what, uh, <laughs> what is that? I don't know what to do with that. If you're thinking that, wonderful, it's doing its job. It's supposed to make you think. We get an opportunity for the next two Wednesday nights to journey with Jesus in the season of Lent. These represent the stations of the cross. And Christianity has always held that the death and resurrection of Jesus are central to everything that we do. And the early church and the church since its foundation has been retracing the steps of Christ to stand with him as we journey through his death and his resurrection. And as a community, we want to do that together. These stations, they represent ideas and elements that are are supposed to make us think, remember All that Christ has done for us. There's going to be readings that go along with that. And I really want to encourage you to be part of that. And this is what I want you really to get. As you walk through these kinds of things, as we read these stories, to remember that no matter what life brings your way, because we may know that Christ has everything, but I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's facing my family in a year. But no matter what comes our way, good, bad, difficult, we are reminded that Jesus has overcome the world. That's incredible. And because of that, we have this incredible joy that he's with us. And so I want to invite you to these two Wednesday nights, and I'll mention that more at the end. But as we close, can we trust Jesus? I encourage you to. I beg you to. I plead with you too. You don't have to understand everything about him to trust him. That's not how trust works. See, today Christ offers you a joy that can never be taken away. It's a joy that's greater than sorrow. It's a joy that comforts us in life and in death and allows us to live now wholeheartedly for God and his kingdom. Today, let's pray.
Father, we thank you for all that your son has done and all that your son is doing now. We thank you for his precious blood that was spilled so that we could be reconciled to you. God, we thank you for your scriptures that make us think, that remind us, God, that these things that we encounter in life are difficult and they can make our, us take our eyes off you, God. I pray that you would draw us back, that we'd come to you, God, that we would ask you questions, God, that we would bring our concerns to you, God, that we would confess our sin, that we would go to you instead of running away from you because we are children of God and we have a right and you're inviting us forward. For those in this room that are experiencing pain and sorrow right now, God, I pray that your spirit would be so near to them, that they would know that you stand with them in both their pain and in their joys. Holy Spirit, flood our hearts with the joy that only you can give. As we journey toward the cross, toward Easter in these next few weeks, may you fill our hearts with such gratitude for all that you've done and fill us with hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.